The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Uh, joining me for the hour is a man that some of you may be familiar with, Mr. Jim Labenthal, who's done the media rounds quite a bit. We're going to be having a really good back and forth conversation on traditional media, social media, and all the insane things that we respectively uh, see along the way. Jim, I know a lot of people, again, have seen you on uh, TV, but for those that don't know your actual background, I want to get into who you are a bit. Uh, what's your background? How'd you get involved in interested markets? And outside of all the media stuff that you do, what is it that you do? Sure. Uh, Michael, it's great to be with you today. I've, I've admired your style and content for quite some time. Uh, as you know, I'm not active on social media. We can talk about that later. But I do see what you post. Uh, your intellectual quality is the highest caliber. But what I admire the most is the way you maintain your dignity in the social media fora that uh, quite often are not dignified. So again, thank you for having me on. I'll answer your question now, uh, which is my background, originally from New York City. I come from a family of financiers, which is to say my grandparents started a municipal bond retail shop in the 1920s. Back then, that was uh, unplowed territory of buying large blocks of investment-grade municipal bonds, chopping them up into smaller blocks and selling them to mom-and-pop investors. Just, you know, your average doctor, your average hardware store owner, uh, middle-class Americans who were looking to save. So I grew up in that environment, grew up in New York City in the 1970s, 1980s. In the early 1980s, I bought my first stock. Uh, so the acorn did fall a little far from the tree. I went to my father, again, a municipal bond uh, manager, and I said, I, I really want to put my brain power to work and find stocks that are trading below their intrinsic value. Now, of course, at age 12, I didn't use those exact words, but I had the bug. I fed it. I, I fed it throughout my life. My first career, Michael, as you may know, was in the Navy. So after graduating Princeton, uh, I just decided I wanted to be patriotic. I wanted to have some fun, uh, do something that was engineering oriented. So became, I became a nuclear submariner. And I did that for seven years from 1990 to 1997. I left because the Cold War ended uh, and it was just time to rejoin uh, normal life. Went to business school. Then from business school, I said, okay, well, you know, I want to take my love of investing and make a career out of it. Went to Goldman Sachs in their private wealth management division. Now, I'm going to fast forward a little bit because I guess I'm an old man and this uh, this can take some time. But from Goldman Sachs, I went to a small money management firm by the name of Levy Harkins, 
where I honed my portfolio management skills, particularly with a value orientation. I spent 10 years at my family firm. And then the last six years, I've been at Sarity Partners, which is the happiest I've been since the Navy. Just a fabulous firm, rapidly growing, just fabulous people that I work with. Uh, we're about uh, 60 billion in assets under management. Uh, I'm our chief equity strategist there. So I advise on internal, internally managed equity portfolios. And I run a portfolio myself for our clients, uh, which is what I talk about on CNBC. Why don't I pause there? Oof, I better take a breath. Thank you, Michael. You talk about the, uh, the acorn not falling too far from the tree. So. I've made this point before. My father had worked with Bob Farrell in the late 80s at Merrill Lynch uh, with a gentleman named Steve Chauvin, who was relatively well-known in the 90s. And you know, I kind of grew up under that dynamic myself. And I'm sure you had a similar situation where you're at dinner, your, your father's talking about you know, munis, talking about markets. Do you, as you look back, do you find that uh, that experience of your father influenced you in any way, or uh, was it never nudged uh, for you as far as getting involved in markets? He never nudged me to get involved in the market, but I will say he was very influential in many regards. But the thing that comes top to mind is uh, having a disciplined approach, being patient, sticking with it. He would often say, stick to your knitting. Now, people who know me, who watch me on air might often say, boy, is this guy stubborn? Boy, does he stick with it. Sometimes it's a fault. I mean, any of our strengths can be a fault. But I am willing to stick with an investment thesis where I believe I've done the, the analysis, even though the share price may, may go against me for a period of time. I'm willing to trust that my analytical skills are proper and that they've come to the right conclusion. That can be very hard to do when the market moves against you. Very hard. But I attribute a lot of that uh, diligence to my father. Uh, who really drilled it home to me. He never said, by the way, I think you should be a bond manager or, you, you know, I think you should be doing your style of investing differently. He said, you look like you know what you're doing. Keep at it. Keep going. Uh, I really appreciate that from him, amongst many other things with my father. The, the word stubborn is interesting to focus on. I mean, if you're going to be a buy and hold true investor, you need to be stubborn because being stubborn means you avoid, you know, selling out at the wrong time when there's a drawdown, presumably, right? It means you're sticking to an approach independent of volatility in the moment. But there's there's got to be presumably sort of a, a point where one is too stubborn, where they stick to an investment thesis for too long, even though conditions are changing. How do you think about when to identify when your stubbornness actually is getting you into trouble? Yeah, well, uh, frankly, experience is the is the best asset that I have in that. And from that, I can say this. You know instinctively when you're getting stubborn. And you know that when you sell a security that maybe you've held on to for too long, that there's going to be a great catharsis when it's out of your portfolio. Now, as a younger man, you may just ride something into the ground and just say, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to hold the reins of this horse, even as it's running off into the sunset and I'm being dragged along on the ground. As an older man, you realize that there is a there is a beautiful feeling of release when you let go of something that just isn't working. I don't think in general or in the specifics, that's where I am now. But I'm certainly, you know, for the last several months, I've been wondering, both for the market overall and certain specific stocks, should I be letting go? Should I be letting go? I think the answer is no. And, you know, I've said this on air a couple of times. I've gotten a little bit of heat for it. But if you go back, Michael, to the great financial crisis, 
it was a terrible time in the stock market, right? And you know, markets were down almost 50%. I forget the exact number. A lot of stocks just got hammered. But if you bought the right stocks, meaning they were high quality companies that were going to make it through what the great financial crisis wrought, if you could hold on to those with gumption, with, with strength, with the strength of your of your analysis, the courage of your convictions, when you got to the other side of the great financial crisis, those stocks rallied. I think quite often about people who sold at the lows in the great financial crisis or in the tech telecom bust, and I think, what a shame. What a, what a terrible shame that they took temporary losses and turned them permanent. Now, of what I just said, Michael, the most important thing is high-quality stocks, meaning you can't be in no-earning stocks that might not make it through a downturn. So, you know, people maybe I'll pick an example right now. Um, I look at Roku. I think it's a very intriguing company. It's emblematic of a lot of disruptive, innovative companies that have been loosely collected in uh, what we call the Kathy Wood or Ark Innovation style. I traded Roku in years past and made a lot of money doing so. Along the way, I always thought there's going to come a point in time where this thing generates a lot of cash and is worth the price of the shares that that uh, that they're selling at right now. I looked at it last week, and now, you know, three years into its downturn, I still can't say that. That's a dangerous stock to me. That's a stock where the permanent, uh, the potential permanent impairment of the value is very large. It's not something like, we'll pick a name from today, Qualcomm. Qualcomm's down in the pre-markets. Uh, they had an earnings report and guidance that did not go over so well last night. I'm certainly not happy that it's down 7% in the pre-market, but I do feel very confident that it's going to make it to the other side of whatever this smartphone slowdown is, and it will thrive on the other side at this valuation. So that's what I, I mean. That's what I mean by a high-quality stock, something that's trading at the right price has good cash flows, and I don't have to worry about it going out of business. You talk about the uh, GFC lows and people selling out uh, during then. Do you think there would be um, many more people that would have missed out post-GFC if you had zero commission-free uh, trading back then? And I say that purely from the standpoint that uh, it's my belief that the temptation to overtrade has never been as high as it is today because there's no barriers to entry anymore. I think it's a great point. I very strongly believe that overtrading and market timing is disastrous. I've seen it firsthand. I've had clients who call me and say, and I'll just pick an example. I'm being totally political. When Trump won the 2016 election, I had a client who called me up and said, we're going to hell in a handbasket, sell every stock that I have. Okay, well, it's the client's money. I'm going to do what they say. 2017, the market's going up. This client's getting very nervous. We start to get invested. We get back fully invested in mid-2018. Then the market starts to go down in the fourth quarter of 2018 as the Fed's raising rates. He says, again, sell. Okay, with his money, we sell again. And then we're chasing it back up uh, right in time for the, uh, the pandemic. That sort of back and forth is almost always disastrous. The, the worst case is where somebody decides that, and it could be because, as you're pointing out, that it's easy to trade. The worst case is where somebody tries to time the market and gets it right the first time, because then they're empowered and they think they're a genius. They think they can do it again and again. And history just shows that most people miss it. 
you may actually get the sale right. You may get the timing right to get out of the market, but you've got to get both sides right. You've got to get the, the decision to get back into the markets right. I know very few people. In fact, nobody comes to mind that I know personally that does that consistently well. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, well, I'd actually argue, I mean, you, you can't have it done consistently well. You can only do it from a magnitude perspective, right? If, if you're trying to get some kind of tail event, right, for example, yeah, you and I both know you can be wrong not out of 10 times, hopefully not get ground to zero, but you get one of the fat pitches and then suddenly that makes up all the the prior losses, just given the kurtosis nature of markets. But let's pivot a little bit to how all that plays into the current state of media, both traditional and social media. I was smiling when you mentioned um Roku, because I remember uh, as SVB was um, getting into the headlines, one of the major talking points was that Roku, I think, had like 400 million or so in deposits, I think was sort of the initial line that was out there. So everyone got worried that Roku would not make it because of what happened to SVB. I I get the idea, obviously, of high quality stocks, but presumably, if you're a trader, you can identify these kind of dislocations, which are really coming from social media to begin with. Walk us through how you think social media may have changed short-term dynamics. Forget about long-term because social media largely is based on the here and now, but in terms of short-term dislocations, do you use social media as almost a contrarian indicator? I can't use it as a contrarian indicator, Michael. And, and the reason I can't is because of what my biggest criticism is. I have two criticisms. The biggest one is it's a source of misinformation. The second criticism is it seems to bring out the worst of people. Um, and you and I have experienced that, you know, just the you mentioned trolls in your opening uh, statement. And there's a lot of them out there. But that's the that's the secondary issue. You know, you grow a thick skin and I've I've seen you punch back uh, ably uh, at people. Uh, so that can be handled. But the disinformation is troubling to me. And it's particularly troubling to me uh, for younger people who may be getting advice. And I see this on TikTok. I see it on Twitter. Things like, don't fund your 401k. Just give your money to me, whoever the whoever the speaker is. Or things like, you know, uh, a lot of media commentary about economics or, or profit news that will come out that really seems to miss the point. And a lot of things that are said in a tautological fashion that's not tautological. So that, for instance, I'll give you an example. I read a, a tweet the other day, somebody saying, Every good investor I know right now is bearish. Okay. So for somebody who isn't really thinking about what that's saying, I mean, it's a, it's a nice demographic trick, or excuse me, demagoguery trick. You don't have any evidence to back that up. You know, who are these uh, very good investors? How do you know they're very good investors? Or is it really true that there are no very good investors who are bullish? By the way, there are plenty who are bullish right now. And I, I really worry about this effect on younger people. Now, I want to go to your question, and you're being very kind in letting me answer the question I wanted to answer. Disinformation doesn't necessarily mean bad information. 
It doesn't necessarily mean wrong information. What it does mean is that there's this fog out there of everything that's coming in on, at social media, and it becomes very difficult to separate out the signal from the noise, which Michael, I think you will probably agree that's the biggest thing you and I do right now is separate out what matters from what doesn't matter. You know, you go back 40 years ago and access to information was the key thing that investment managers wanted. If they could get information before somebody else, that was their edge. That's not where we are today. Information is ubiquitous. Information is everywhere. The problem is information overload and misinformation overload. So separating out the signal from the noise is very important. And I have found you can't just simply go to social media and say, okay, well, the conventional wisdom is always wrong. I'm going to be contrarian. You've got to look at various different perspectives. Now, I'll close this, this part of our discussion by saying this. The perspective that matters the most to me right, wrong, or otherwise, is what companies are saying, what company managements are saying. And I'll give an example from right now. Everybody's worried about a recession. Uh, the airlines are not worried about a recession. The automobile manufacturers are not seeing a recession. Casinos are not seeing a recession. MasterCard and Visa are not seeing a recession. So that's a perspective that that I really pay attention to. It matters the most to me. No, okay. So this actually, there's a lot of what I want to push on on that because I think that's, that's very important. I, I, so I used to do uh, both Bloomberg and CNBC quite a bit a decade ago, and I was um, co-hosting a Bloomberg show. And it was like a recap of the day's market news. And I asked during the commercial break, uh, the anchor at the time, you know, how are ratings at Bloomberg? And the anchor said to me, well, you know, ratings correlate to the VIX. And of course, I smiled, right, knowing exactly what he meant. I said, so does that mean that the media has a hidden incentive to create a certain degree of fears, to create a certain amount of negative narrative to get people to pay attention. And then the commercial break ended and we're back here with Michael Guyad, right? Blah, blah, blah. I reference that because you bring up an interesting point. There, there's two different narratives. There's the CEO narratives where there are not, there doesn't seem to be as much focus on recession or concern on recession. And then you've got traditional media and social media constantly pushing out the fear narrative, the recession narrative, what to do with the recession. Um, and that's been ongoing now for like a year and a half. Do you, do you find that there really is sort of a an incentive to try to push out fear because that's what brings in the eyeballs, brings in the eardrums, that's what brings in advertisers? Uh, or is there some validity to some of this negative narrative that seemingly is always out there? Of course, there's some validity in the current environment to the negative narrative. Uh, and I'll address that in a second, but your overarching comment is spot on. One has to understand that the media is designed to do one thing. It's to put eyeballs on their program through whatever channel that is, whether it's the internet, radio, television, media companies want high ratings. They want eyeballs because that is the way, and ears, because that is the way by which they get higher advertising rates. And that is their business. It's to sell advertising. Now, that may sound to some people like, wait a second, that's not right. The media should be in the business of telling the truth. And I'm not saying that journalists are all compromised. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is understand what their primary motive is. It's to get ratings. Now, if everything's hunky-dory, ratings go down. It's just that true. If people are fearful, if people are worried, and this is your comment about the VIX, because volatility is a measure of, of fear, at least in part, then they tune in. 
They tune in to CNBC and Bloomberg. They click on the internet. In our quarterly conference calls for the last several quarters, I've put up some slides from the summer of last year. And these are headlines that say things like, oil's gonna go to $280 a barrel. Uh, that was a JP Morgan worst case projection. Of course, speaking of uh, JP Morgan, there was the Jamie Dimon hurricane comment, which was literally from 11 months ago. Elon Musk's super bad feeling about the economy. I'm bringing up things that to date have not come true, but the media absolutely you know, flogged these, these headlines and these topics because it gets people to come to their websites, to tune in on the TV. It's not that they're being duplicitous. They're reporting the news. But believe me, the media is a lot happier when things are dark and scary because that gets eyeballs and ears and that leads to ratings and better advertising rates. Yeah, it's interesting. Right? I mean, I always go back to nobody can predict the future. So you can't accuse the Jamie Diamonds of the world or the Elon Musk of the world for having a view of an uncertain tomorrow. But the amplification of the message is, I think, where maybe you can argue there's some contrarianism uh, one can take advantage of. Going back to your comment about somebody saying, well, everyone is bearish. Well, that may just be because that's what you're seeing, because that's what the algorithm is pushing out to you, because you gravitate towards that. And algos are designed to enhance confirmation bias, right, to kind of get people to pay more attention and uh, open up those apps. So it is interesting to think through. So let, let's talk about the kind of the, the current environment macro-wise uh, in terms of how you're seeing things. I've been you know, pretty loud on the melt-up argument October 3rd, then kind of more recently saying that I think we're in the midst of a correction that may have started third week of April. I'm saying that based on a lot of intermarket analysis signals that I can backtest that I know have some, some predictive power, not fully, obviously, like both things. What's your view in terms of short, intermediate, and long-term? Because that's the other thing with traditional media and social media. It's a confusion around timeframes. I always make it a point that you can be bullish and bearish at the same time, right? It's just a function of when play, each plays out. Uh, I think that's a very good point. And I, I also think it's not just time frame, uh, Michael, but things operate on a spectrum. You know, for the past several months, there's been this discussion of whether, whether we're in for a hard landing or a soft landing, then it became the no landing. And, and it's this idea that somehow we're in one of two or three categories, and that's it. I don't think that's necessarily the case at all. I think things are in a spectrum. So I, I try to say this quite often on air that while I am optimistic, I, I'm trying to do it from a balanced approach. I can see the negatives out there. We can all see the negatives out there, right? The Fed has raised 500 basis points in about 14 months. That's a tremendous negative. The yield curve, various signs of layoffs. What I also counter that with, and by counter, I mean counterbalance it with, is the fact that this economy really is quite a bit stronger than people seem to give it credit for. Uh, whether you measure it by GDP, whether you measure it by the labor force, or excuse me, the labor market in general, or also profits, which uh, as of uh, this morning, profits for the first quarter have come in about 4% better than expectations. Now, granted, those expectations were lowered, but they're still coming in better than expect, uh, expected. The point I'm driving at with, with here is you have to take both sides of the equation, the negatives and the positives, and decide where you want to come out in the balance between them. It may well be that I'm too optimistic, and this is where your question comes in. If I'm too optimistic, it's a matter of time. It's a matter of time before the Fed really is done, and I think they are done now. It's a matter of time before the economy really feels all the effects. 
and then gets back on its feet. So to be more specific, let's just say I'm wrong and there is a recession in the second half of this year. I know that's the prevailing wisdom out there. Uh, me and my firm, we put about a 40% probability of that happening. It could happen. It could happen. But if it does happen, it's likely to be short and shallow, and it's likely to be over by the end of the year. I say this because the Fed really should be done. Inflation is coming down, and the Fed should be done at this point in time. If that's right, then the market should start to reflect sometime this summer that 2024 should be growth again both in profits and the economy. And the market is likely to start to discount 2024 a good six months before it happens. So that really means 2020, uh, excuse me, that really means the summer of this year, just a few months away. This is my long-winded way of saying we're on a spectrum. It isn't all disastrous. It isn't all honey and roses. We're on a spectrum here. And within that spectrum, I'm tilted a bit more to, towards the optimism than to the negative. Now, there's a lot more going on in the economy, and I'm sure there's things you may want to talk about, like the banking system or what the Fed actually is going to do. So I'll, I'll let you guide, Michael. No, no. Okay. So, but, so the, the word spectrum is interesting in the context of exactly what you just, just said, banking uh, situation, crisis, whatever you want to call it. But you can argue the bears have been right when you look at small caps, right, which have diverged dramatically against you know large cap, mega cap, largely because of tech and largely because of the financial crisis with the regional banks, I've made this point that the regional bank crisis basically killed off the value trade in two weeks, which everyone was getting hyped on. And then money didn't go out of stocks. It just went from value to growth. Is there anything in your experience that you've seen that looks anything like this, where there isn't the kind of co-movement internally across the market, where there's this kind of real disparity? It's really like two different markets are taking place within U.S. equities. Yeah, it really, it really is. It's the opposite of the spectrum uh, comment that I made. And just to put numbers to it, you know, the S&P 500 as of yesterday was up about six and a half percent on the year. The NASDAQ was up about 15 percent. Small caps in the Dow Jones industrials were pretty much flat on the year. Now, what is that saying? That's saying really that FANG, you know, large cap tech is what's carried uh, the markets this year. That's why the NASDAQ is up about twice what the overall S&P 500. Now, that is, in my opinion, a reflection in the market that people are very, very worried about a recession, much more than the 40% uh, probability that I put on it a minute ago. Uh, there's a seemingly uh, ubiquitous belief that there will be a recession. And the playbook from the last 15 years of low to no growth in the economy and earnings is you go to tech because that's the only place to get earnings growth. Okay. I disagree. I disagree. I think that going forward over the next few years, what you're going to see, regardless of whether we get a recession in the second half of the year, is that the more industrial, more hard asset portions of this economy are what are going to thrive. I'm talking about energy, materials, industrials, and yes, even financials. Now, why is that? It's because there's a heck of a lot of construction and industrial production going on in the country right now. Uh, Michael, you've heard me talk about supply chain onshoring. It's a very powerful force. We're building semiconductor plants, automobile plants. We're going to be building solar power plants. There's infrastructure spending from two bills that have been put into legislation over the last two years. That's coming to fruition. There's a third force that I've started to talk about and I don't think is getting enough play, which is just pent up industrial production. By this, I mean Boeing. I mean the auto manufacturers. If you look at deliveries and productions of airplanes and automobiles over the last three years, there's a tremendous gap. There's a tremendous undershoot that 
in the first part was caused by the pandemic, in the second part has been caused by supply chain issues, which are now healing. And as they continue to heal, you're going to see airplanes produced as fast as Boeing can. You're going to see automobiles produced as fast as Ford and GM can produce them because they really need to replenish the inventories on dealer lots. And that's going to happen regardless of whether we have a second half recession. Now, when I think through those three forces of what's going to propel the economy for the next couple of years, that to me benefits the basic materials like the steel manufacturers, the energy companies, the Exxon Mobiles of the world, the industrial companies like a Caterpillar, like a Union Pacific, that's all going to be involved in this manufacturing, reshoring, and renaissance that I believe is going on now and will continue in the economy for the couple of years to come. Oh, Jim, I got to give you a lot of credit. The um, uh, And because I've, I've tasted some of this in my own history, it's... Um, I don't know if people really appreciate how hard it is to be in front of a camera to do podcasts and to just rattle off a lot of interesting uh, facts and and stories and and data points the way that you do. I'm curious, do you have a, do you have a team behind you that helps you kind of prep some of the stuff that you do with CNBC, or is this all just you know you're good at what you do, and then that it all just kind of comes out because it's part of your subconscious and it's part of your own study of markets. I am only as good as the team behind me. Uh, this is such a good question. I'm a, I'm a strong believer in team. I have a team of other portfolio managers that I work with, about ten portfolio managers uh, at Serity Partners. Many of those portfolio managers also do uh, individual equity analysis, and then we've got five dedicated equity analysts who all day long are talking to companies, thinking about the sectors that they're covering, thinking about what companies they should buy and what companies they should avoid. Uh, we all work together, and the reason that this is very important, I dropped a clue in my in my opening. Uh, uh, comments to you about my background that I do have a value orientation. I think we all have orientations. We all have biases. And the good thing about a team is people will come up to you and say, hey, I think you're looking at this wrong. I think you should look at a growth stock. I think you should look at this sector of the market that you otherwise wouldn't be looking at. It's very humbling, but empowering when you listen to somebody who's got a differing opinion from you. Now, by the way, it's one of the things that appealed to me about you. You have opinions. They're very well thought out opinions. Your, your lumber comments, as an example, you listen to when people on social media give you a dissenting viewpoint, as long as it's respectful. When it's not respectful, you punch back. And I admire that, too. I really do admire that. Uh, you don't put up with any nonsense from people. But the ability to admit where you might be wrong is vitally important, vitally important. You do it and I try to do it. And it, it comes from a team, it comes from having people with different viewpoints who will tell you, I think you're wrong. And I appreciate that. And I will say, you know, you and I both know that there's a fine line between being wrong and being early also in this in this business. Right. I mean, was all throughout last year, I kept on tweeting repeatedly. This is hell because I could see that treasuries were not responding as the flight to safety dynamic was was failing. And in my case, I run rules based strategies where I can't do anything about that, because if I do, it's against the the prospectus. Right. So it's easy for people to kind of. point and shout versus uh, if they're actually in the arena, knowing that their weapons may not be working for a moment in time until the cycle comes their way. And maybe that's a good place for the final question, which is, where are we in the cycle? Uh, again, I, this is different than kind of the bull bear argument. I always go back to the line I say repeatedly, there are no gurus, only cycles. And it's ultimately about cycles as far as what drives uh, performance. Um, do you get a sense that we're in 
the early stages of a bull cycle towards the latter stages of a, rec- of a recession expansion cycle? What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, it's a really good question. And some of my colleagues with whom I appear on CNBC, whom I really respect, have said for several quarters, we're in the late cycle of the expansion. And I have said for quite some time, I think the expansion is just going to continue to march on. Where I think we are is that the expansion continues to march on. But again, going back to my comment about a spectrum, yes, the economy is expanding, but it's expanding slowly. So right now we saw GDP in the first quarter came in at 1.1%, a little bit below expectations. Now, on the one hand, it is growing. On the other hand, it's growing very slowly. There were things to like in that GDP report, like the fact that consumer spending was up quite a bit and that the the disappointment really came from inventory destocking, which at some point will reverse. But to answer your question directly, Michael, I think we're in an expansion that continues after the pandemic. Where I would be wrong in that assertion is if we actually get a recession in the second half of this year, that would be, hey, guess what? The expansion ended. And now we'll start a new expansion in 2024. The reason I don't think we're going to get the recession is a few things. One, the labor market is just gosh darn strong. I mean, look at the ADP report from yesterday, 300,000 jobs. Look at uh, in the month of April, look at weekly jobless claims, which continue to just stay at at a low level. You've got profits, as I said, doing much better than expected. The key attribute here, I think, still teeters on the Fed. And are they done or not? They should be done. They should be done. I'm not really sure this Fed fully knows what they're doing. Um, Yesterday's rate hike disturbed me. It seems like it's a rate hike that will have no positive effects, but potentially many negative effects, particularly on the banking system. So, you know, where we fall out on that spectrum and whether we have a hard landing, bumpy landing, soft landing, no landing, and I'm trying to expand the categories on this spectrum really comes down to the Fed. They need to stop right now. They need to stop. Let's see if they do. Again, everybody here, uh, please show support to Jim Labenthal. Obviously, tune in when he speaks on CNBC and does a number of these types of media appearances. Uh, I am sincere when I say this. Jim is one of the good ones in this space. He was very kind to me when I was pushing back hard late last year against some of the things that were really vitriolic against me personally. We're all trying to figure it out, folks. Uh, So please be respectful to each other. And thank you, Jim. I'll have this as an edited podcast for everybody here. And stay tuned, folks. I've got Grover Norquist coming up in three minutes. Thank you, everybody. Cheers. Bye-bye. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.